Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. I, the teacher, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see all is vanity and a chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a chasing after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And on that happy note, (laughs) we begin our series on Ecclesiastes. I've never preached a series on Ecclesiastes, and in five weeks when we finish, you may think you have yet to hear a sermon on Ecclesiastes. Uh, But before we we begin, I want to begin just by saying a word of thanks to Reverend Toy King for her message last week. Many of you were here. Uh, I heard her message this week on Wednesday, and I rededicated my life five times to Jesus in the context of a 21-minute sermon. It was a beautiful thing. She's inspiring. She's a gift to this community, and I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say that, as is our staff, uh, Casey and Laura uh, James and Pats and all of you, what a, what a privilege it is to be a part of a church where we have such congregational care, where people assume their ministry as their baptized uh, ministry to people in need. I think there are three or 400 of you who are part of the ministry of the church in a lay capacity, 
And it's a marvelous thing to be a part of the body of Christ. What a blessing. So the title of this book, Ecclesiastes, is actually a, a, a translation of a Hebrew word which is Kohelet, if you can see it on the side. The Hebrew Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, literally means teacher. And the other thing, if you're into word studies, that you can see in this word, Ecclesiastes, you can see the root of the word Ecclesia, which in the Greek means church or assembly. And so Ecclesiastes is a teacher or an assembler of the community who seeks to teach life's lessons to the body. Kohelet, teacher. This particular book contains the musings or the thoughts of a royal sage, a noble king, many believe to be Solomon, although his name is never mentioned. It is as if he is speaking for Solomon in Jerusalem and in the process is sharing these incredible insights and observations which are related to his own personal search for meaning. And all of us can identify. If you have a pulse today, if you have a heartbeat, you are seeking truth, you are seeking purpose, you are seeking meaning. It's a part of the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Scriptures. There are three such books that are classified as wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. If you were here last fall, you know that we began in August and September this series on Proverbs, 10 weeks. We called it Wise Up. Five weeks from today, we're going to study the book of Job, that third wisdom book in a series called Why Me?, and today we begin a five-week series in Ecclesiastes. Now, some have asked me, why are we spending all of this time in the wisdom genre of the Bible? And it's quite simple, the response, because we live in an age that has a surplus of, of knowledge, but a shortage of wisdom. Now, even in your pew today, you can Google all the knowledge, all the data, all the info that you could manage. I hope you won't do it during the sermon, but you could do it. But I've never found a way to Google wisdom. It's ungoogleable. Amen. Because wisdom requires experience. Wisdom demands practice. Wisdom requires formation, spiritual formation, and it demands discernment. I read something that Mark Twain once said, what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. And there seems to be a lot of that going around sometimes. And so this book of the 66 is actually an anthology, it's a collection of worldviews and perspectives that are believed, at least in the time in which they were written, to lead to what we might call the good life, all of which, according to the author, come up short. It's interesting to note the keynote of this book. It's found in one word, the Hebrew word hebel. The NRSV, John, that you read is vanity, translates vanity. There's a better translation in the NIV, meaningless. Uh, worthless, uh, futile, fleeting, temporary, like, like a puff of smoke or a breath of vapor. 
And it's so important in this book that the author uses it no less than 35 times in 12 chapters. In fact, listen again to the opening remarks in the prologue. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a rather pessimistic opening remark, particularly in a book that we consider to be inspired. God breathed, thought of something George Will once said, the nice part about being a pessimist is that you are constantly being either proven right or pleasantly surprised. It was George Bernard Shaw who said there's room for both optimist and pessimist. They both contribute. The optimist invents the airplane, the pessimist the parachute. You need both. Ecclesiastes is fundamentally different from all the other books in the Bible in this regard. It reflects a purely human point of view. The teacher has sampled all of these secular perspectives, all of these human philosophies, searching for meaning and come up short. In fact, it's not till the very end of the book that the writer actually tells us where true meaning is found. In the next to last verse in Ecclesiastes, this is chapter 12, verse 13, it says, this is the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. And when I read that, I thought if you'd started with that in verse one, you could have saved me about 45 minutes. But he does it intentionally for this reason. The writer is leading the reader to God by contemplating life without God. Have you ever discovered how much you can learn from the antithesis, not just the thesis? I've discovered the hard way you can learn so much more by failure than you can success. In fact, I'm just talking about me. This is probably not true of you, but I am completely teachable after a failure and I am completely unteachable after a success. Now, there's another recurring phrase that gets our attention in Ecclesiastes that underscores the point that I'm talking about. It's the phrase, under the sun. John, it was twice, I think, used in just the first chapter. Under the sun, you see it 29 times in 12 chapters. And so what the teacher is doing, Koholeth, is intentionally restricting his quest for meaning to that which is under the sun. In other words, exclusively, he's only looking at the observable world, the materialistic world. And so it's no wonder to me that his conclusions are kind of glum because when I hear that read, and I did a moment ago, I could hear the Apostle Paul in my ear and he was saying, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if for this life only you have hope, you are to be pitied more than anybody. There's more to life than that which is simply under the sun. Now, I'm going to say something about this book that you may disagree with. And if you do, it's, it's okay. You've been wrong before. <laughs> I think this book is actually a critique of humanism. I think it's a critique of secular humanism. And you say, well, what does that mean? Viktor Frankl, you remember Viktor Frankl, the, the neurologist, 
psychologist who survived the Holocaust. He, he wrote an incredible book that's a must-read called The Search for Meaning. And he had this to say about secular humanism. Secular humanism posits that human beings are capable of being ethical and moral without religion or without belief in a deity. Let me put it in layman's terms. Secular humanism believes that it is possible to be good without God. Hmm. Now, I'm, I've discovered, this is not you, this is just me, I've discovered that it's possible to be bad with God, but is it possible to be good without God? Comedian Bill Maher, you know that name? has made a career out of attacking Christians, and he made a film a few years ago. I don't recommend it. It's called Religious, and he offered up in the film a complaint of religion in general and Christianity in particular, and this is a part of the script. Listen to this. The plain fact is religion must die in order for humankind to live. The hour is getting very late, to be able to indulge in having key decisions made by religious people, by irrationalists, he calls them, by those who would steer the ship of state, not by a compass, but by the equivalent of reading the entrails of a chicken. Now, it may come as a surprise to you that Mr. Marr takes a very dim view of Christians and of faithful people, but I would never entrust my ethics to Mr. Bill Mar. I'm asking the question, is it possible to be good without God? This is the question in Ecclesiastes. This royal philosopher, this noble king, in a very vulnerable way for all of us to see, traces his own search for meaning through all kinds of isms, through hedonism, through pleasure, through sensuality, through sexuality, through toil, through hard work, through reputation, success, through politics, through construction, building, planting, through, uh, through materialism and utilitarianism and, and regalism and fatalism and all of this, only to discover that all of these isms are futile attempts to fill a God-shaped hole that is right here. Augustine was right when he said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And what the writer is saying that all, all pursuits under the sun can wind up like chasing the wind. Now we usually have to find this out for ourselves. You can't read it in a book and get it. We usually find it out the hard way, the hard knocks way. I remember in my own experience when I was 14, I was convinced the good life would come with a driver's license to be 16. And three months after I got my license, I had an accident and I discovered that with that license of freedom comes accountability and I didn't like 16 anymore. When I was 16, I thought if I can just graduate from Overton High School, if I can just get my diploma, my high school diploma, I'll be legal at 18. If I could just go to college and get my degree, if I could just in college, if I could just go to graduate school, in graduate school, if I could just get my doctorate, if I could just buy a house and get a bigger church, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. 
And to be sure, there is some happiness in them. But in the end, these are not the things that give life meaning. I've discovered that what you and I need the most cannot be found under the sun at all. You have to look above it. You have to have a more transcendent view of reality. You have to look to some degree over the rainbow in order to stop chasing the wind. I think what the teacher is doing in this book under the inspiration of the Spirit I think he's deconstructing our worldview in order to reconstruct a deeper foundation to a higher plane. In fact, when I read about deconstruction, I think of the work of recovery, actually. I think of AA, I think of Alcoholics Anonymous, and how you have to go through detox in order to get sober. You have to go through deconstruction in order to be remade. You have to acknowledge an addiction in order to be free of it. And in the church, you have to repent of sin in order to be saved, to live a new life. Paul said it like this, if you're to live in Christ, you have to die to yourself. It's deconstruction. Now, in a purely secular worldview, life is pessimistic. I read the other day of the atheist hotline. If you're in trouble, you dial it and nobody answers. It's pessimistic. Given only a humanist perspective, life does seem to be more circular, cyclical, repetitive, endless repetition than it is linear. And let's face it, history does repeat itself, doesn't it? Wars, violence, still repeats it. The teacher makes clear that sometimes history is cyclical and he uses the object lesson of nature, earth, wind, and fire, sun, wind, and water. Listen to what he says. Listen to this again. What profit do we gain from our toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go. But the earth remains forever. Sun comes up, sun goes down and rushes back to the place where it rises. I love the, poet, the poetry of that. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, round and round she goes, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. All things are so wearisome, the eye is never satisfied with what it sees, nor the ear with what it hears. There is nothing new under the sun Repetition, cyclical, endless. This is not to say that we're not creative, that we're not industrious, inventive. We're made in the image of God, which means that we have the capacity to be creative. Just look at the methodology and technology of our time. In fact, the rapidity of technology changes is way beyond our ability to adjust. But human nature doesn't always seem to change, does it? In fact, the more things change, <laughs> the more they remain the same. And we are all like sheep, astray, finding our own way, fallen creatures who are in desperate need of help from above the sun. We need more than bootstrap help. We need more than self-help. We need God help. <laughs> 
We need divine assistance. And here's the good news. We have it. We have it. The idea that history is only cyclical and not linear is more a reflection of secular philosophy than biblical revelation. The Judeo-Christian worldview does not portray history as merely an endless cycle of futility. The biblical perspective portrays history as going somewhere, as moving to a specific purpose, a specific goal, a specific end or objective that is ultimately redemptive. We serve a God who actually inserts himself into our own world whether we ask him or not. He intervenes in history. Let me give you an example. God intervened in Sarah's barrenness and gave them descendants like the stars. God interceded in Joseph's pit and raised him to prime minister. God interrupted Pharaoh's oppression. God made a way of dry path in a Red Sea and led slaves to a new land. God rained down manna on hungry refugees wandering in the wilderness. God made a home for exiles by the rivers of Babylon. This is a God who intervenes, who in the fullness of time took on human flesh and became the Lamb of God to take away my sin and yours. And on the third day, <laughs> lifted him up. This is not an endless spiral of sin and death. We're going someplace. Revelation 21 says, there will come a day <clears throat> when there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning, when the old cycle will pass away and the new will come and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. That doesn't sound cyclical to me. <laughs> History's not a dead end. We're going someplace. Not because of human progress, but because of divine intercession. And sometimes you can see it beyond the sun. And when you see it, you stop chasing the wind and start chasing the spirit. Let me give you one example and, and I'm finished. I was in Atlanta last week for a funeral. Sherry and I were there for a rather tragic funeral for dear friends. And while I was there, I was thinking about Emory University. I'm on the board there, and I was remembering uh, Dr. Fred Craddock, best preacher I ever heard. Every time I heard him preach, I wondered why I ever tried. He was a wonderful man from West Tennessee, little town in West Tennessee. He had a vivid imagination, a prophetic imagination. And I remember one day in class, <clears throat> he told us this story. He had been with his niece over the weekend in Florida, and he said their family had recently adopted a, an old greyhound dog, a retired racing dog. And he said this dog was very pleasant, seemed very happy about his retirement. 
And Fred said, I, I found myself alone with that dog in the study one afternoon, and I decided to ask him some questions. Fred said, I, I looked at him and <clears throat> I said, you, you racing any of these days? And the dog looked up and said, no, I don't, I don't really do that anymore. And Fred said, well, do you miss the glitter? Do you miss the excitement of the track? No, he said, not really. Uh, Fred said, well, what's the matter with you? Did, you? did you get too old? And he said, no, I've still got my legs. I've still got some race in me. Fred said, well, did you stop winning? And he said, no, I, I won over a million bucks for my owner. Uh, Fred said, well, did you get injured? You got hip problems? Or, he, no, I just quit, the dog said. You quit? Yeah, I quit. Why did you quit, asked Fred. Because, he said, the dog said, I found that that rabbit I was chasing wasn't really a rabbit at all. And I realized that all that running, all that moving and running and what I was chasing wasn't even real. That's one smart dog. <laughs> Turns out you can teach an old dog new tricks. What are you chasing? What are you running after? What are you running from? Somebody's running from God, and God is chasing you. What you're looking for, what I'm looking for, cannot possibly be found merely under the sun. You have to transcend the sun. And once you find him, or once you are found by him, it changes everything under the sun. In fact, it changes your tune from hebel, meaningless, to meaningful, meaningful, utterly meaningful, everything is meaningful. Because once you have found your why for living, you can endure any how <laughs> that you ever face. And that's the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. In Jesus' name, amen.